0: Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November fifteenth, two 2016. Coming up, in this month where we have a new president-elect at the same time that world climate talks are taking place in Morocco, we'll speak with Boulder scientist Max Boykoff. Boykoff will give us an on-the-ground perspective about what people are saying at the climate conferences and what lies ahead. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Today, we have a special edition of the Science Show that features an on-the-ground look at what's happening at the Morocco World Climate Talks from the perspective of a bolder scientist. He's Max Boykoff. But first, a little overview. Number one, as you know, Donald Trump is the president-elect. Trump has signaled in many ways that he's skeptical of the need for aggressive action to reduce carbon emissions and reduce pollution. Point number two, all this is changing very fast. So fast, science experts have encouraged us to provide information promptly so that it doesn't go out of date between when we do an interview here at KGNU and when the interview broadcasts. With that in mind, we've been fortunate this morning to reach Max Boykoff. Boykoff is a scientist at CU Boulder and author of a book, Who Speaks for the Climate? He spoke with us this morning, just an hour or two ago, from the Global Climate Conferences taking place right now in Morocco. Here's that conversation and interview. Max Boykoff, there in Morocco where you are right now, I can see the flags of, is it 200 nations? that are there for the Conference on Climate.
1: This is the 22nd Conference of Parties, but it's actually just opening up the first discussion around the parties that are implementing the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement just earned sufficient ratification And so it entered into force on November 4th. So it opens up a new set of processes.
0: You're a Colorado scientist. What's brought you there to this conference on climate change?
1: I just spoke this morning, my time, in a side event hosted by the International Environmental Communication Association. So I work at the interface of climate science and policy, and then also as it meets people's everyday lives. So my training is interdisciplinary. I'm the director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research there within the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado.
0: You are one of the people at Ceres here in Boulder, Colorado, but right now you're there in Morocco at the Climate Change Conference. It's morning here. It's little afternoon there. A part of the world where there's 200 nations that are meeting to look at how to implement The ideas behind the Conference of the Parties on Climate Change.
1: That's correct.
0: And you're an expert on how people absorb this kind of information and what they do about it. So what are people talking about with regard to the United States having just gone through an election where Donald Trump is called a climate denier?
1: Well, as you can imagine, this is a topic of a lot of conversation here in and around the COP. Particularly when I reveal that I am from the United States, many uh, ask questions about what does this Trump presidency mean for the future of these negotiations. There is a great deal of concern that's here. President-elect Donald Trump is a big fish that what the United States does or doesn't do within these negotiations going forward does make a difference, but it is a a rushing stream.
0: Are there enough other fish to move efforts to reduce the effect of human-caused climate change?
1: Yes, there are strong currents that are pushing towards progress. The United States is very important. They are a key player here, but they represent now 120% of global emissions. And they are important to the success in terms of leadership, but The international community appears to be determined to continue to move forward.
0: Now, what percentage does the United States contribute to emissions in the world? I I didn't quite catch that.
1: Yeah, it's now under 20%.
0: How does that compare with other nations?
1: It's disproportionate to our population for sure. Per capita emissions, the United States is one of the major emitters. The United States is a high consumer. Each person in the U.S. on average has quite a high carbon footprint relative to others across the world. And that is another reason why the United States and the decisions that are made at the U.S. national level are very important to the future success of this agreement.
0: How about other countries that have the same standard of living as the United States? Is the carbon footprint per person in those other countries as high as it is in the United States?
1: No, that's the short answer. No, many European countries are set up where their infrastructure, transportation systems and so forth that, that often contribute to these uh, emissions are, are much more efficient. And so the per capita footprint of citizens in those nations is much lower.
0: What are you hearing from other nations where they have a smaller carbon footprint, even though their standard of living is comparable to the United States? How are they doing it compared to how we're not doing it?
1: Sure, well, I mean, emissions essentially come from four main sources. The first being industry within a country. Second, uh, the second being transportation, the way that we get around. The third being household emissions, and then the fourth being agricultural and land use practices. In particularly the the spaces around uh, industry, there have been higher regulatory standards that have been made, that have been put in place in some of these other countries. And then on a personal level, at the household and transportation, in those categories, there has been much more efficiencies within the system. And so, you know, I will point out that that oftentimes this can't be framed as an issue of individual uh, effort and individual heroism or um, individual decisions that are made to reduce one's carbon footprint. But when you think about it at that scale, it's oftentimes shaped by the decisions and the opportunities that emanate from those decisions at the larger scale. So building infrastructure that, that facilitates public transport uh, from place to place that, that lessens the need or even uh, lessens the uh, the desire to have a personal automobile to get around. That certainly reduces one's carbon footprint.
0: You say, Max Boykoff, that there in Marrakech, Morocco, you're hearing a good deal about how other countries have been more successful in building an infrastructure that helps their citizens use less energy to do what they want to do. Are there other countries that are seeing improved climate and their leadership there as an opportunity that's an economic opportunity?
1: I would say yes. For the most part, the way in which many of these countries' leaders are motivated is that they seek to reduce vulnerability, to increase resilience of their communities. They seek to uh, help the citizens of their nations adapt to already uh, committed emissions into the atmosphere. So many countries who actually contribute very little through their citizens, through their industries to this climate change challenge of the 21st century, they still are faced with these challenges to adapt. Um, I also think that that increasingly there is recognition from some of the higher polluting countries, uh, perhaps China in particular, that engaging with Mitigation uh, commitments, commitments to reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions, can be seen to build the uh, sustainability and, and and fortify their economies.
0: China is an interesting example because China is kind of dirty right now. The air is dirty the concern of the people is they can't work as hard. Is China going through a big turnaround based on that?
1: Yes, I mean, China has really engaged uh, quite significantly in this process. In particular, uh, China has has committed uh, a great deal of funds for climate finance, which is um, in part to help transfer technologies to the developing world to help with adaptation in poor nations, uh, that they have been contributing a great deal to what's emerged as what's called a Green Climate Fund and an Adaptation Fund. They also have been making strong statements about their commitments for uh, emissions reductions in their country. There are also opportunities for them to get out in front and become a leader in this decarbonization movement and clean energy. With the uh, developments over the last week, China has cautioned that if the incoming Trump administration does back out of Paris, and there's a number of ways to do that. I mean, there's three main ways to be able to do that. There is a three-year window. If they were to announce on day one, January 20th, there would be a three-day window to get out of Paris. They would have to wait. Uh, As a second option, they could get out of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed and ratified in nineteen ninety-two by George H. W. Bush, and that would be a year delay, or they could push it to Congress and ask for them to ratify or most likely not ratify. China has been very strong in saying that this would damage trade relations. And, you know, others have also said that if the United States removes itself as a potential leader in decarbonization, that they squander the opportunity to continue to hold on to power in this international sphere, whether that be moral standing or economic standing, that a shift of power can be transferred uh, over to other nations, including China, if the United States don't continue to push forward.
0: Well, let's look at that a little bit closer, Max Boykoff. Take cars, for example. One of the items that's in the news right now is that the new administration under Trump might make the push toward greener cars much more lax and slow. Is there talk about that there at the conference there in Morocco?
1: I haven't heard that specifically, but I've been tracking conversations through the media of the, of the concerns around that, certainly.
0: At, I hear in the background, by the way, a call to prayer happening.
1: That's in right. Morocco. You've been here to Marrakesh?
0: Yes, that's right. A call to prayer in this very Muslim country. It's just part and parcel of life in a country where they are using a lot of solar power, lots of solar power there in Marrakesh. That's right. Quite a combination. Call to prayer and solar energy. Yes. Okay, back to the issue of the cars. From your expertise, as someone who looks at how humans are responding to climate change, are other countries going toward... Much greener cars, or are they just saying, let's just keep the ones we've got and enjoy that?
1: Well, I mean, I think a larger push here at the international scale where I sit in the Conference of Parties meetings here at the UN Climate Talks that there are systems being put in place to facilitate those shifts towards greener economies. There still is a lot of flexibility within nations to decide what they prioritize, how to meet their stated emissions reductions goals through the Paris Climate Agreement and some of those nations have have put a priority on transportation. That's certainly correct.
0: If the United States made cars that are not green enough, could they sell them in
1: Europe? That's certainly a good question, that as these dynamic discussions continue to mature, that the kinds of penalties that could be in place for production of automobiles that don't meet emission standards in other countries could then come to the fore. That would certainly have economic impacts for the United States abroad. Could we end
0: up, if we had cars that were not green enough fast enough, could we be stuck with only being able to sell those cars in the United States?
1: Well, that's always a possibility. I mean, that's a good example of why what might seem be seen to be some of the more mundane negotiations in places like Marrakesh here at the the Conference of Parties meetings, why they are important to establishing what are the parameters, what are the guiding rules and obligations that each country can then pursue and meet their own emissions reductions goals and then structure their own economies and industries to fit. While the, the focus of media attention may be on Trump as an individual, as this charismatic individual who has a great deal of power, I'm surrounded by many uh, committed business actors, and this is not just a meeting of parties to the negotiation of representatives from these countries. There are many different business and industry groups here that are closely tracking those kinds of developments, and they're closely monitoring how these uh, signals emanate from the climate talks and how they impact their own industries, including the automobile industry.
0: Okay, so there are people there who are watching what happens at this conference on climate change for how they can benefit their countries and their economies by taking the best parts they see there. I'm curious from two perspectives. One is that in eras where the Republicans have led... It has been commonplace to reduce the power of the Environmental Protection Agency and to not be in formal arrangements and agreements with other nations as much when it comes to climate change. You know, that that it has been typical of Republican administrations.
1: Well, I mean, we're seeing that shift. Myron Ebel being nominated to head the transition team for the EPA is quite frankly, a worrying sign. There haven't been discussions that I've been a part of that have talked about him or talked about a potential appointment to the permanent role uh, to EPA administrator here so far, but there's more of a generalized anxiety of that being a signal of the rollback of regulations, of maybe the indication of more uh, market-driven privatized conservative visions, playing themselves out in critical, uh, critical agencies within the executive branch and across the U.S. government.
0: And he has been labeled widely as a very aggressive climate denier. Is, Is that, that a fair, fair
1: statement? statement? Well, I don't like to use the term denier, frankly. I choose the term contrarian. I think denier has too many devastating cultural, historical dimensions to it. And I do think, though, that his contrarian stance on many of these critical issues around climate change is very, uh, very concerning.
0: Someone who opposes the idea of government being involved in changing what's happening with our climate might point to the fact that the United States did reduce its carbon emissions without signing on to, for instance, the Kyoto Protocol. Could the United States still be in a position to reduce its pollutions if it's not part of the big climate change decisions happening now there in Morocco?
1: I think yes. I think in that regard, it should be a yes and. I think that it is critical to be a part of these discussions, to be signed on and a full participant in the Paris Agreement. And there are many other ways that that, uh, a nation can achieve carbon emissions reductions. And so there can be a number of market-led uh, initiatives that could be put in place that operate outside of uh, regulatory schemes, that are incentive schemes that can also achieve emissions reductions. But at this critical stage, I mean, this is uh, a very important time with this challenge of climate change. That that rather than selecting either or, whether you go the route of regulation or the route of of maybe a more business-led, deregulated, privatized model. I think it needs to be all...
0: The other change that seems to be in the air compared to when Reagan was in office or the Bush presidencies where a president was Republican in office is that in those times, alternative energy was more expensive than fossil fuels. And now alternative energy is getting to the point where wind power and sun power if done on a wide enough and big enough scale can actually be less expensive than fossil fuels. Is there talk about that there at the conference?
1: Absolutely, and that's a very good example of how the markets can dictate shifts within the economy. That, um, you know, some of of Trump's campaign statements and and some uh, hope that they were just campaign statements about reviving the coal industry really goes against the grain of the market trends and it's akin to declaring that we're going to bring back 8-track tapes the market just isn't there Um, with the coal industry the discussion needs to be on how to help uh, families and cultures that have that have grown up around coal to transition into this new carbon economy into this Uh, new space where renewables where solar and wind are cost competitive
0: have you heard some ideas for how a community that's been a coal community can make that transition to having good jobs in their area even though they're not digging coal
1: yes i mean there have been uh It is an open set of questions, and there's a great deal of uncertainty within these coal communities, and that's very real. Um, That should not be overlooked. At the same time, uh, the Clinton campaign had had promised to put forward and earmark funds that would be available to help those communities transition. I haven't yet heard uh, Trump come out with any specifics on how to help those coal communities transition, but it's critically important, uh, critically important in helping um, an important swath of our uh, U.S. society that's contributed substantially to the well-being and the economy of of the 20th century in the United States to help them then get a foothold into 21st century uh, economy.
0: I hear from what you're saying that, in a way, we don't know exactly what the new jobs would be for people in those areas if we made that shift. But you're seeing in other countries that they're, facing the same kind of amorphous question, what will these people do, but they're assuming that they're not going to have as many coal-fired plants in their countries anymore.
1: That's right. I mean, this is part of the challenge, but there are many different plans and many different proposals in place to help with those transitions, uh, to help with um, establishing new industries, new opportunities for jobs. Because uh, this, is, this is a challenge that we've been facing now. We've been negotiating in this space for uh, over 20 years now. And this, these are the kinds of things that the many people, there's 10,000 people here operating in different capacities that many people are working on, both inside this meeting and then outside of it, to help with this transition.
0: Well, in the areas where you've worked on, in your specialties, I hear you saying that what the United States does in terms of clean energy is not going to change what the world is doing.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, the world is moving ahead in many different ways here. I mean, it's, it's uh, Here at the COP, it is an encouraging space that there are many who are working on climate finance that I mentioned before, establishing a green climate fund and an adaptation fund to achieve a pot of $100 billion by 2020 to aid poor nations. Um, That's a mix of government contributions and private donors. There's encouraging movement around how to review the pledges that countries have made within the Paris Agreement. Um, The United States, for instance, the agreement or the commitment that was made to reduce 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. uh, The U.S. has been a leader to this point on helping to publish national data emissions, uh, establishing a review committee, and then setting up steps for sanctions and penalties for non-compliance. There's been a lot of an encouraging movement around the consideration of loss and damage, which is compensation for people within the poor countries to uh, help with climate adaptation, or help with the impacts of, of climate change. And there was an international mechanism that was put in place in 2013 in Warsaw that is being followed up now, and there's a great deal of momentum there. I'd say that, you know, here in the COP, despite what uh, we may be feeling in the U.S. context with the recent election, with concerns about what the incoming Trump administration may do, there's a great deal of ambition here on how to limit the warming above pre-industrial levels. There's a great deal of momentum. Some of what I described, in addition to uh, aviation's emissions discussions. How to phase out hydrochlorofluorocarbons, which is a a component, one of the greenhouse gases that is uh, regulated, and how to move from the entry into force on November 4th into a set of actionable items. Marrakesh is being called the the, uh, meeting of action, and really this is where the hard work begins. Paris was discussed as the end of the beginning, and this is the opening of the next chapter of implementation so I think for those reasons, there's a great deal of encouragement here at the the conference.
0: There's a great deal of encouragement of what the nations overall will be doing, including China, including India. Yes. India is also on board for this. India has been known as a big polluter also. Is India going to reduce its coal-fired plants? Is it going to do more to reduce its pollution?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, Obama and Modi had come together and and pledged their uh, cooperation on this issue in the past. And and there have been many indications that within their cultural context, largest democracy on planet Earth, that they will be also moving forward um, in addressing these issues. That's right.
0: All right. And are you hearing anything differently from people who are from India saying, well, if the United States doesn't do this, we won't either.
1: Right. That is a concern. I have not heard that yet.
0: Okay. So in general, we could say cautiously that other countries are planning to move ahead whether the United States does or not in terms of trying to reduce overall pollution and carbon emissions on the planet.
1: That's right. I mean, this... This commitment, the Paris Agreement, and everything that's going to follow, that's, that's being uh, sorted out now here in Marrakesh and beyond, are really opportunities to engage in this international space in the 21st century. That um, many of these countries see this as an opportunity that they don't want to squander like it appears the United States may squander.
0: So you wrote a book called Who Speaks for the Climate? What are you thinking? Are the people there speaking for the climate?
1: Yes. So the consideration, for instance, of loss and damage, how to compensate for the impacts of those at the forefront of climate change, often the poorest countries, took quite uh, some effort to get a voice, to get some standing. But it does have standing, just it really in recent years. in order to speak for the climate, a number of critical voices from around the world have had to work very hard.
0: That's Max Boykoff, who's speaking by Skype from Morocco this morning at the World Climate Talks taking place there in the city of Marrakesh. Max Boykoff is a scientist at CU Boulder and director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research, which is part of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Studies at CU Boulder. He's the author of the book on climate science and social response titled, Who Speaks for the Climate? That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. I produced and engineered today's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.